Well, uh, happy Mother's Day uh, a week late. Uh, a week ago this past Friday, I uh, joined four siblings, two brothers and two sisters. We flew in from uh, all different parts of the country to uh, Little Rock. My parents, 20 years ago, retired outside of Little Rock. My dad has passed away, but my mom is still there. And uh, we uh, quite surprised that we pulled off a surprise. And uh, we, um, we invaded uh, her space uh, for the weekend. We initially uh, surprised her at a restaurant in uh, Benton, Arkansas. We worked with uh, one of her friends to, uh, to get her there. And it was a great, uh, it was a great memory. And uh, very thankful for that opportunity. But I was gone last weekend. So happy Mother's Day to those of you, um, all of you ladies. And, and today we are starting something new. Today I want to set before you um, a, a passage that sort of uh, relates to a plan that we have. And uh, this is a plan, this 21 days of prayer uh, is, is the plan for the next three weeks. But it is also sort of foreshadowing where we see ourselves headed next year. So, um, as you might know, um, a few years ago, we set out this REACH campaign. And we said we want to raise additional money in order to reach people. And we said we want to reach people, and we're going to measure this by uh, starting new churches overseas and locally. We want to see people come to faith and be baptized. And we want to serve people, and we're going to measure that. We're focused, not exclusively, but focus a lot of our attention um, in the North Chicago community. So um, this is part of our, our vision statement that we want to help fuel a movement that reaches people and renews communities. So uh, we didn't raise all the money we set out to raise, but we were able to do a lot of the things that we set out to do in REACH. So we started four churches overseas, uh, two in Ghana, one uh, in India, which has now become digital in light of all that's going on over there, and then one in a Middle Eastern country, uh, that is working primarily with refugees. And those are all very encouraging uh, projects. Thank you for helping make those happen. And then, of course, locally, we, uh, we launched the Vernon Hills campus uh, this past year. And, uh, <laughs> and then we, we uh, sort of unwittingly launched an online campus, which we did because of COVID, but that was sort of a plan down the line, and it's now the biggest campus that we have. Uh, we're going to keep that going. So that was one aspect of REACH. Another was uh, baptisms. Um, um, we we want to see people come to faith. Baptism is a very imperfect measurement of that, but, um, but it's the easiest thing to count, and we're just over halfway of the 500 that we wanted to see. Um, I think 260 is where we're at. And then in terms of uh, serving, we said, well, we wanna, we're going to measure this by uh, investing a million dollars through Renew, the 501c3 that we started uh, that is focused on uh, jobs and housing and community development as uh, all initially in North Chicago. So we did invest a million dollars and we, we went past our 100,000 uh, volunteer service hours uh, as well. So that was the REACH part of things. Um, we now find ourselves moving into the second part of our vision statement and that is renewal. And this was not initially the, the, the goal, but it sort of grew out of this past year. And so what we are 
looking for as this is, is starting in the fall is to focus uh, on personal renewal, spiritual renewal, individual uh, creation of greater intimacy with God in depth. And then in the winter, we'll, we'll transition into church renewal. And then as we move in, into the spring, we'll go beyond that and, and looking at renewal uh, beyond our, our walls. And so um, all of that brings us to uh, a very iconic passage found in 2 Chronicles chapter, chapter 7, uh, verse 14, which is this call uh, to humility, to prayer, to seeking God's face uh, so that he might renew us, renew our land. So, as you might know, um, Second Chronicles is, um, is a book that was written by Ezra, who was um, a priest and a religious leader and very involved in renewal. Ezra was a 5th century B.C. prophet. Uh, he was focused on the southern uh, kingdom of Judah. And um, he also, he's the guy that wrote the book. Uh, he not only wrote uh, First and Second Chronicles, which sort of chronicle the events. They sort of retell some of the very same things that were covered in, uh, in, in First and Second Kings. Um, but they retell them from, from a particular angle with a focus on renewal. So he wrote those books and he also wrote the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. So uh, as you might know, the Old Testament has three kinds of books. There are historical books, there are prophetic books, and there, is, there are wisdom books. And um, Second Chronicles, First and Second Chronicles, are historical books. And the history of the Old Testament um, breaks out. I mean, it, it, there's, a, there's a flow, right? And after the initial setup, Genesis 1 through 11, which is sort of universal history, it's creation, fall, uh, promise. We then have the story that unfolds in eight segments as we're looking at the Jews, who are God's chosen people. God calls Abraham, I'm going to bless you, bless your descendants, give you land, give you descendants, and, and going to fulfill the promises made in, in Genesis 1 through um, 11, going to fulfill the promises made specifically in Genesis 3 to send a, a redeemer, going to fulfill that through your bloodline. So we have these, these eight sort of eras of the Old Testament. It starts with the patriarchs, which takes us uh, through the, starts with Abraham, Genesis 12, and that goes through the rest of the book of Genesis. Then we have the Exodus, because the people of God who were given the land leave the land during a famine. They end up in slavery in Egypt. And so you have Moses leading them out with Exodus. And then you have, uh, you have the book of, uh, you have this era of conquest, mostly Joshua. Then you get the period of the Judges, where everyone's doing what's right in their own mind. Then you have the United Kingdom, uh, which, is, which is mostly about David and Solomon, a little bit about um, Saul before that. Then you have the divided kingdom after Solomon's death, uh, the 12 tribes that David had unified, split. You've got the northern and southern kingdoms. Uh, and then you have, uh, so United Kingdom and then divided kingdom. Then you have exile, uh, where the northern Ten tribes have already fallen away, been overrun by the Assyrians. We don't hear from them again. The southern two tribes of Judah uh, go into Babylonian captivity for 70 years. And then the final section of the Old Testament is their return. So 
Ezra is writing Second uh, Chronicles from the same from the from the post-exilic period. So this is after the uh, this this is happening after the exile and the return. So again, he's writing around the same time as Nehemiah uh, is serving, and he's looking back at the history of the Jews and. Um, what we get, again, is just a slightly different take on this than what we find in First and Second, actually First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings. So First Chronicles focuses more on the priestly aspect of uh, what's going on. Second Chronicles, our text, our focus for this uh, this launch into renewal, it, it is essentially an evaluation or observations about the ebb and flow of the people of God, the Jews throughout the Old Testament. And um, while what we see is mostly bad, so again, we're focused now on the, on the southern two tribes called Judah, the northern ten tribes kept the name Israel, southern two tribes called Judah. We're going to pick up with them after Solomon, and we're going to see them heading into uh, their Babylonian captivity. And so most of the news is bad. Uh, there is a descent. There is sort of spiritual lethargy and apathy. And when that happens to a people, when that happens to a family, when that happens to a city, to a state, to a country, uh, bad things play out. Uh, now, interestingly, while what we're looking at and reading about is decline, uh, the book of Second Chronicles is not a is not an negative book. It's not a downer. Uh, it doesn't focus on the bad kings. It doesn't focus on the bad actions of the good kings. Uh, it focuses more on um, some of the good news and God's faithfulness and the opportunity for restoration and uh, all of that. You know, you sort of got a little bit of this marquee verse in Second uh, Chronicles chapter 7. If my people who are called by my name, will humble themselves, right, and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will, uh, I will listen to their prayers and I will forgive them and I will heal their land. So that's the second, uh, that's the passage that is sort of uh, ushering us into this. And, and I want us to go there, I, I want us to go to the book of Second Chronicles as a, as, as a launching pad for this whole upcoming year of renewal, uh, and I want us to look ahead at that, so we're praying now for what's going to come in the fall, I, but I want us to go there because while uh, it's a little um, naive to suggest that history repeats itself, I, I think Mark Twain is perhaps a little bit uh, more spot on when he says history doesn't necessarily repeat itself, but sometimes it rhymes, and we see patterns throughout the Bible, throughout the Old Testament, uh, into the New Testament, in church history, uh, periods where people run hot and cold spiritually, and, uh, and there's just this ongoing uh, cadence where, um, where uh, people get in a crisis and they call out to God and uh, humble themselves, and God sort of restores them, re-engages with them, they re-engage with God, they then start to prosper, 
uh, that prosperity often leads to spiritual lethargy, which leads to a crisis. And so then it, the crisis leads back to a crisis prayer, to repentance, to humility, uh, to obedience, to prosperity, uh, to spiritual lethargy, and a crisis. And so we just see this happening over and over and over again. And so um, I mentioned the book of Judges already, where everyone's doing what's right in their own eyes. Uh, that's not a good thing. That does describe today's age, but that's not a good thing. Um, but, but, but it's going to be a crisis when that happens. And so I, I want us to sort of have this overarching understanding uh, of, of what, has, what is happening. And I, I want us to, to think about this historically because, because I, th I just think we're at that kind of a moment in our country and in the world. I think we would all be inclined to agree that this has been a difficult uh, last 14 months. It has been, in many ways, um, a time of crisis or decline. And, um, and it's been a time of surprise. And, and by surprise, I don't mean, <laughs> surprise, Mom, we've all flown in to spend the weekend with you. I mean surprise as in, uh, are you kidding me? I mean, back up to January 2020, we had, um, we had plans for 2020. And perhaps you are the kind of person that has written out goals and objectives and, and uh, mission statements and vision statements and, and budgets and all kinds of things that line up for what's going to happen over the course of the next year. And so huh, lots of churches uh, this one included, had plans about what was going to happen. And then uh, COVID hits, and initially it's like a six-week delay? Are you kidding me? We, we, we don't have time for a six-week delay. <laughs> that's, that's what I remember thinking. I don't have time. God, what are you doing? I don't have time for a six-week delay. Uh, and then, of course, the six-week delay turned into an 18-month delay. And it's not just COVID, right? All kinds of things have been happening. The disruption of COVID itself was disrupted by George Floyd and Ahmaud Arbery and Breonna Taylor and others. And uh, then there were the, the challenges uh, about the quarantine and unemployment and a contentious election and January 6th and a Senate runoff. And then there's scandals uh, in the church and in, and in all kinds of other agencies and the left moved further left and the right moved further right and um, we just sort of had storm after storm and uh, you know the, you, the ground is saturated and so there's no place for the water to go and it just it became um, a very challenging time and you know this I don't I don't have to repeat the events we've been repeating them everybody's been repeating them uh, I'm not going to repeat them but it seems uh, prudent to just acknowledge that we're in this period, and it seems particularly prudent to say, well, uh, while it's not always clear where we're headed, we ought to pray. We ought to humble ourselves and pray and seek uh, a deeper cultivation with the Lord. So what I want to do today is I want to share with you the eight, um, the eight things that I wrote out uh, and, and sort of tacked on the wall in front of my desk at home. And these are, these are not uh, brilliant insights. I'm not claiming that. But they're 
just things I need to remind myself of as we are moving through this, this moment, and it leads, as you'll see, into our passage. So, um, the first thing uh, that I will note uh, is that many things are going right. Many things are going right. Yes, many things are going wrong. And we are not moving through this moment uh, the same. Some people are, are finding life is perhaps even easier than it has been in the past. Surprisingly, uh, things are working out uh, well for them. But many people are finding it to be a, a season of, of much greater struggle. And I think, especially outside of this country, uh, that there are many, uh, tens of millions of people, hundred millions of people who will never recover from this past year. People that were climbing out of uh, deep poverty over the last four or five years that have been knocked back into deep poverty. And it's unlikely uh, that they are going to rebound anytime quickly. So uh, I, don't want to, I don't want to make light of that at all, but I also want to acknowledge that um, as I'm looking, as I'm reading the news, or as I'm skimming social media, or as I'm doing other things, I want to remind myself, many things are going well. And, and I think part of what is incumbent upon us as we seek to grow in Christ uh, is that we uh, cultivate, you know, a, a character that is, that is, that is gracious that is thankful, that, that embraces gratitude, and that sees, uh, sees good in the midst of what's going on. I, I did a, a podcast this past week, interviewed a friend uh, who has a book that came out this week called Stuck in the Present, uh, How History Frees and Forms Christians. And um, one of the questions I asked him was, you know, okay, you're all about history uh, if you could live at any time in history, when, when would you live? And, um, you know, he sort of throws the question back. Well, uh, I mean, I've, I have thought about this, and, and the truth is, you know, sort of like my iPhone, and I like antibiotics, and uh, I like the fact that I can get on a plane and fly down and see my mom, um, who lives, you know, seven, eight states away. So... Uh, there's a lot about today that we should be thankful for. Number two, many things are more fragile than I realized. Uh, many things are going well, but many things are in fact more fragile uh, than I thought. It looks like we are moving out of COVID. And I am thankful for those people who sort of um, you know, threw aside their plans for 2020, those in the uh, medical professions, those in the scientific community, big pharma and other things, and, and sort of went after how do we navigate this, how do we move forward, and it sure looks like uh, we are moving out of this. We have much to be thankful for, but it's not lost on me that, um, that this surprised lots of people, uh, surprised me, and in the book I wrote on the future, I listed pandemics as one of the five monsters under the bed that could climb out and change everything. But I didn't expect it to unfold as it did. And, uh, and I, I remember a couple years ago having somebody walk me through 
uh, what exactly happened in 2007 and 2008 in terms of the financial crisis and understanding then that, that things were, were balanced, you know, on a, on a razor's edge and could have gone in a different direction and been far more devastating than it has been. And I think that there, the, that's true, continues to be true in, in other countries right now, that things are devastating, again, as I think about around the world for COVID or other reasons. Um, life is more fragile than we often uh, recognize it to be. And so uh, I just need to be reminded of that. I'm not, I'm not suggesting be fearful. I'm not fearful. I don't find that uh, a cause to be fearful. I cause that, I, I view that as a cause to be more reflective. Look, um, I believe God is in control, that eternity changes everything. I believe that there's, um, there's, there's great reason for peace uh, and hope, but I also want to acknowledge the, the, the day-to-day life that I have come to expect is more fragile than I might have thought a year ago. Number three, things are not going back to the way they were. So in particular, I think uh, COVID, but again, all kinds of things have happened in the last 14 months. But um, in particular, I think it's important that we recognize that COVID was not a, an interruption, it was a disruption. And it, it's, it's accelerated things that were already in the queue. For instance, all the remote work and and if, if your expectation is that your life goes back to the way it was, that your, your work goes back to the way it was, that your church goes back to the way it was, then that's probably setting you up for some, um, some confusion and disappointment because there are things that I think don't change back. And uh, we just need to acknowledge that. If, if, you're, if you're waiting to go back to normal, that's trouble. Um, and if you're waiting even for the new normal, <laughs> I think that's misguided. I think what, we're, what we are waiting for is uh, the next normal. And the next normal will be followed by the next normal after that. So, so all that to say, if you're looking for stability in this broken world, you're not going to have any more success than uh, Euripides had. He is contemporary, actually, of Ezra. He's the 5th century B.C. Greek playwright um, who has this uh, character who walks around uh, ancient, walks around in Athens with a lantern. And uh, he's sort of a bumbling curmudgeon, and he's looking behind doors and under tables, and when people ask him what he's looking for, (laughs) he says, I'm looking for an honest man. Um, so uh, Euripides was a little bit of a scourge. He was, you know, a little bit of a, he was a little bit down on things, but he was also a little bit more, he was realistic about how broken people are. And so I would say, if you're looking for stability in this world, in whatever that might be, in your, in your 401k plan, in your job, in your, in your home, and it's, it's not there. And part of what we need to understand is, uh, things are not going back to the way they were. Number four, uh, in addition to expecting change, we should expect hard. In addition to expecting change, we should expect hard. Now, we should always be expecting hard because when we read the Bible, and for that matter, when we look at church history, when we look at history, uh, we look at... <laughs> 
We see in the Bible that we, we are told to expect trials and tribulations. We're told to expect persecution. And uh, when we look at history, we see that history is, is littered with, uh, you know, with, with genocide and plague and injustice and war and, uh, and all kinds of famines and dust bowls and depressions and all kinds of things. I mean, that's, uh, we shouldn't expect utopia. Uh, that, that's not what scripture suggests. That's not what, uh, that's not what we see if we take a look around. So um, I suspect, one man's opinion, but I suspect that the days in which in the West, in North America, the church can comfortably be a subculture of the broader society, I suspect those days are going away. Now, uh, let me say, we were never called to be a subculture. We were always called to be a counterculture. We were called to be this revolutionary uh, community of grace, hope, and love. Uh, we were called to, to be people who were living with one foot in the city of man, but, but uh, sort of two feet in the city of God. Uh, we were called to be looking ahead. Um, so don't confuse me with Chicken Little. Um, I, I, I don't know that things are going to get worse. Um, it's, it's easy to always go there and to sort of, uh, you know, uh, awfulize what, what, is, um, what is in the queue, and I want to be alert to that. Um, I think it's important that we realize that if some of the uh, things that people uh, are scared of actually happen, we're likely still going to have it better than 95% of the people on the planet and then 99% of the people who have lived throughout the course of, uh, of history. And so I think we've got to keep our perspective about all of this. Uh, I think it is very possible to live a good life as part of the counterculture. I think that hard might be good. It might be purifying. Uh, it might help us wake up to what, what it looks like to be a disciple of Christ. Um, Christians generally uh, do a lot better in hard times than they do in good times. Christians often do better without power than they do with power. Uh, I, as a pastor, worry far more for people who are thriving and have an easy life than I do for people who are, who are struggling and are being kept uh, on their knees seeking the Lord. So uh, I do not want to, um, I, yeah, I, I don't want to, I don't want to scare anybody on all of this. Again, these are, these are my points. <laughs> this is what I'm looking at. Not necessarily what you need to look at, but uh, I find it important to remind myself that in addition to expecting change, that I should expect hard. Um, number five, I believe that I need to be more like Christ. I need greater spiritual depth. I need greater intimacy with Jesus. I need to be more uh, conformed to Christ. I need to be more transformed by the Holy Spirit. Um, I, need, uh, a, I need a more vibrant love for others, including my enemies, according to Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, I need to be somebody who is, who, when people think of them, they think um, joy, peace, patience, kindness, Goodness, self-control, right? I, I need more of that in order to navigate uh, what is in the pipeline. I, I think, 
you know, that um, the level of spiritual maturity that sort of uh, allowed us to navigate the past may not be enough. The level of, uh, of intimacy with Christ, the level of commitment that, that worked uh, 10 years ago may not work going forward. And so um, I feel like uh, I, speaking for myself, I look and say, okay, I need uh, to go deeper. I actually came to this conclusion three years ago, and uh, it was driven, there's sort of two observations that, that precipitated this. Uh, one is the, the challenges, the, the, the things I saw in the church. So let's just be clear. <laughs> in you, <laughs> you are the church. I'm not talking about buildings. The things I saw in the church that I didn't like um, I saw in myself, and I thought, I can't, I can't be part of um, fixing that in others <laughs> if I don't sort of first fix that in myself. And, and then I, I realized that, uh, that more of the same was not going to get me where I needed to be, that I needed to shake some things up. And again, this is, this is me. This isn't necessarily you. And, and, uh, so I, I don't, I don't, I'm not trying to be legalistic in this at all, but I, I found it important to change my sort of devotional practices and my morning routine and, and some of those things because simply doing what I've been doing was only going to, once it's keep me where I was. And so um, I added some things and I, I, um, I started reading some different things and I extended times of prayer and, and journaling and reflection and all of that. And, uh, you know, again, I'm not, I'm not trying to uh, saddle you with some guilt trip, but I do want to say that uh, I personally said I need, uh, I need to be more like Christ and that means I'm going to have to change things in order to, to spend more time with him. Number six, the church needs to be more fully conformed to the gospel. So um, it's not just that I need to be more like Christ, right? We collectively need to be more like Christ. We need to be more of this uh, community of grace, hope, and love, this revolutionary um, cadre of people who've been called out by God, called out and equipped by the Holy Spirit in order to be salt and light in this broken world. I believe the church is God's plan. Um, I, I believe that the church will prevail. Um, I, I am a big fan of the church. It's got lots of problems, but I am a big fan of the church, and I believe that it will, it will prevail. And I think there's a lot of wisdom in the, the whole idea that the local church is the hope of the world. But I only believe the local church can be that source of hope. Um, I only believe that, um, that the, the local church is uh, going to prevail if the local church is what the local church is supposed to be. And so uh, I, I think we're sort of waking up and saying, okay, well, we've got to do some things differently than we have done in the past. I think the, the local church... Um, ourselves included, missing the mark in a number of ways. At its worst, the local church comes across um, 
as just another self-interest group that is just lobbying for what they want for themselves. And uh, that's not at all who we have been called to be. So um, I think we've got to raise our game. Number seven, seventh thing that I have written down to remind myself of when I'm feeling in any sense overwhelmed or down is that God is in control. Nothing that has happened in the last year has been the least bit of a surprise to him. Uh, COVID is, is not, uh, was not a left turn uh, from him. He is completely in control. And um, his plans will come about. His church will march on. The church has prevailed against every pandemic, against every plague, against every depression, against every war, against every dictator. The church marches on. God's will will be done. God will bring about his kingdom. We pray for that. We can be confident his kingdom will come. His will will be done. And so... uh, uh, (laughs) God is in control, be encouraged. And then number eight, I can't do everything, but I can do the right thing. So as I look at all that's going on and what needs to happen and what needs to happen in the church, what needs to happen in my life, what needs to happen uh, more broadly in, in, uh, in, in the United States or in the state, whatever, I can't, I can't do everything, you can't do everything, we can't do everything, but we can do the right thing. And... Uh, And the right thing certainly includes, perhaps I could say, the right thing starts with prayer. And that leads us to this passage uh, in 2 Chronicles chapter 7. So uh, I'm going to begin reading in verse 11. And so in the earlier part of this chapter, Solomon has been... uh, communicating with the Lord. Solomon is at a good spot. This is young Solomon. He is zealously seeking God, and things are generally going well. And so then uh, we pick up in verse 11. When Solomon had finished the temple of the Lord and the royal palace and had succeeded in carrying out all he had in mind to do in the temple of the Lord and his own palace. Remember, David is the one who pulled together all the... um, the resources to build the church. God wanted, didn't want David to build it. He wanted Solomon to build it. So Solomon gets this temple built. The Lord appeared to him at night and said, I have heard your prayer uh, and I've chosen this place for myself as a temple for sacrifices when I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain or command locusts to devour the land or send a plague uh, among my people. Okay, when these things happen, uh, if my people who are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. If my people, God's people, right? If God's people will uh, humble themselves and will pray and will cry out to me and seek my face and turn from their sin, then I will hear from heaven, I will forgive their sin, and I will heal their land. Now, let me uh, call a big time out right here, because this passage is one that many people love to cite, and, and I want to be really clear that there's a part of this passage that is not something that we can claim as a promise to us. So this is a passage 
that was given 3,000 years ago. Uh, and it is being directed to the to the southern the the the, the Jewish people, the people of God, the southern kingdom uh, of of Judah, and it is a promise that is sort of contextually bound. When we are doing Bible study, right, we have to understand uh, the context. We have to understand what we're reading. We have to understand is this. Is this a promise made to everybody? Is this a promise made to a certain group of people? Can I claim this or not? And I would say that, uh, that the idea that, uh, that we can, can say, if we will pray, listen to me now, because I think I'm going to throw a left turn. Uh, I'm, I'm going to throw a curveball at you. So I do not believe that we can say that if we humble ourselves and if we pray and if we do um, if we turn from our wicked ways, that God is going to give us in America the kind of, uh, the kind of, of godly government that we want. Uh, I, <laughs> I don't think that, that this passage guarantees that because I think it was directed very specifically in that context at that time. Um, now, I do think there is a lot of truth in this passage, and I'm bringing it to you to say, look, uh, there's lots of other places. I mean, when we, we go to the New Testament, we don't, we don't see the, the early church um, ever claiming this passage. And it, it, it almost looks like the more they do the right thing, the more the early church um, seeks God and is humble and is praying and is sharing the gospel and is seeing the, the church grow, that the government of Rome gets worse. It doesn't get better. And that there's more persecution. And uh, they never cry out and say, God, what's going on? You promised us, 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14, that if we did these things, that you were going to heal our land. So, so I think we've got to be really careful here. Now, keep listening, because there are, well, there's no promise that God will heal our land and give us the kind of government that we want. There is a promise uh, many other places, not just Second Chronicles 7, that say, that, that suggests that, that God's people, if you come to Christ, you've been adopted as his child. Right? Think about that metaphor. Think about that image. Right? Think about what your identity is. If you have become a child of God and you turn to your heavenly Father in humility and prayer, and, and you, you, you come to him uh, seeking to live a, a just, right, holy life. And you call out to him. All of those things are reinforced in all kinds of other passages. We are told that we should, we should come before God. First uh, Thessalonians, we're told that we should seek his face. Many places say that we should humble ourselves. And that the second, uh, or Philippians chapter 2 says that you know, if, if we humble ourselves, God will exalt us. Uh, Jesus is an, is an example for that. So there's all kinds of places that say, yes, this is the right path to humble ourselves, to pray, to seek God, and, and to move forward with him. And I believe that is the path that we need to head down. So, so we are entering into this 21 days of prayer, and we're doing this with the idea. We're praying now. <laughs> with the idea that we are, we are asking God to prepare us and to, to guide and direct us and to move in us and to change our heart and to use us 
as we enter into this next year of renewal. So a uh, bunch of people, elders and, and staff and others have been meeting and praying and, you know, throughout the, throughout the last six to nine months, talking with other churches and reading books and studying scripture and trying to figure out, you know, which, what's going on at this moment? What metaphor are we supposed to be looking at? Is this a time of pruning? Is this a, is this a time when, uh, uh, you know, we should be thinking Exodus. Should we be thinking exile? Should we be what's the what books of the Bible are the most apropos for us right now in order to guide how we think about things? And uh, well, there's many questions. What what quickly sort of came to the top was well, what we know we should do is we should pray. And so, um, starting tomorrow, there's a number of resources that roll out throughout the course of this of this series. And uh, there's video devotions. Um, I, I've been doing these now for over a year. Uh, we're going to change it up. They'll be a little bit shorter, a little bit more practical. A variety of people talking, you know, taking one aspect of prayer very simply, um, you know, two to three minutes. What does it look like to pray or how do I do this? And I started this last week in the, those devotions. But so those come out each morning. Um, middle of this week, we have, uh, we have an extended uh, sort of uh, podcast episode on how to pray uh, for your parents. We also, uh, we've got small group resources uh, that complement that. We're going to roll out a biography um, about books on prayer, because there's so many great books on prayer, classic books, new books on prayer. And I'm, the challenge, let's be clear, <laughs> the challenge is not to pray, uh, the challenge is to draw close to God, and prayer is a means to that end. And so, um, again, I don't, I don't want you to you know, check the box and go, okay, I prayed. Yes and no. I mean, we're, we're not praying in order to say we prayed. We're praying to come more fully and consciously into the presence of God to allow the Spirit of God to guide us, to direct us, to transform us, that we would become more like Christ and more the kind of, uh, en enjoy more of the peace and, uh, and enjoy that we're promised, but also be the kind of people that are a great benefit to those around us. So I set before you the 21-day uh, challenge of prayer. Let me pray for us now. Heavenly Father, uh, turning to this passage in um, 2 Chronicles chapter 7, we desire to be a people who are humble before you, who are seeking your face, who are seeking to live more godly lives yielded to your Holy Spirit, uh, seeking to, to draw into your presence and to be moved and transformed and uh, shaped by your Spirit to become more like Christ. Father, we set this church in front of you, all four campuses, people watching online. It is it is our desire that, that, that your church would be more and more the bride of Christ uh, that it should be. So guide us to that end. Prepare us now for what you're going to do in and through us as we move into the fall. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.